May it be so, may it be so. Let's turn to Romans chapter 12. We're going to cover a whole verse today. You people are never happy. I'm going to read chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and then chapter 14, which will be the heart of our text this morning. Please listen as I read the word of God. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Our Father, we come this morning and we ask that you would speak to us, that these eternal truths that we are going to be talking about, that you would penetrate our hearts with this and give us the ability to be like Christ, who blessed those who persecuted him and did not curse. For we ask in his name, amen. One of the hardest things that Jesus ever said, at least for me, maybe for you as well, is when he said that the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks, meaning that if you want to know what's really in your heart, listen to your words. Or another way to put it is whatever is in there is what's eventually going to find its way out. We're, we're all like a coffee pot, and it, you can pretend whatever you want to is in the pot, but when you put your cup under there and you move the little spout, whatever's really in the pot, that's what comes out. No matter what we want to believe is in there. If it's bitter, nasty coffee, then you're going to get bitter, nasty coffee out of the, out of the spout. And if it's really uh, robust, flavorful coffee, then that's what's going to come out, right? That, that's what our mouths do. Our mouths are the spouts. Uh, some, I don't know, I won't go there. But the mouth reveals what's going on inside. So if a person is filled with pride, for instance, if, if that's what's in the heart, then when that person talks, much of what's going to come out of the mouth is going to be me stuff, right? Uh, things that talk about my accomplishments and the things that matter to me and the things that I've done that you should hear about because in my heart is pride and arrogance, so what's going to come out of my mouth is prideful things. Or if the heart is filled with bitterness and anger, uh, then what's going to come out of the mouth is, is the biting words, the, the destructive words, tearing other people down because we're angry and we want them to suffer as well. That, that comes out of the heart eventually. Uh, if we're filled with self-pity, if our heart is, is poor me, then what's going to come out is, is all the complaints and the, the frustrations. Things never go the way I want them to. and Nobody cares about me enough and, and poor me. It's going to come out because that's what's in our heart. Sometimes people don't say much, 
And, and we've sort of bought into the old adage, right, that it's uh, better to be silent and thoughtful than open your mouth and remo- remove all doubt. Uh, and, that, and there's wisdom in that, but sometimes people don't speak much because what's in their heart is fear. And if I'm afraid, then I may just keep my mouth shut because I don't want to actually say what needs to be said. And it's not really a wise thing. It's more of a, I'm just too chicken to say anything at this point. We, the mouth does reveal what's going on in the heart. Conversely to all of that, if what's in our heart is Christ and his grace and the truth of the gospel, then what is going to come out of our mouth is words that communicate grace and kindness and love and patience and the gospel. It's going to come out because that's what's in there. That's, that's who we are. It seems to me that one of the, one of the ways, maybe the most uh, uh, acute way that what's in our heart is forced out of our mouth is when we encounter persecution. It seems like if ever there's a place that's going to expose, like an x-ray, what your heart really is, it's going to be when somebody wants to hurt you based on what you believe or what you do. How does the world tell us to respond when we're oppressed, when we're persecuted, when, when someone is not treating us well because of something we believe in or something that we do or something that we are, the world says, we need to fight back. Fight fire with fire. Protect yourself. Don't stand for that. Go out and, and make somebody suffer. Fight fire with fire. Call down fire from heaven. Whatever. That, that's sort of the, the world's view. That's what we should do. We need to stand, take a stand and not tolerate being treated like this. Somebody's going to persecute me, I'm going to get them right back, right? That's, that's kind of how the world speaks to this. As Bob alluded to in his, uh, in his prayer, we saw some of that this past week from uh, an area not too far from my hometown in Ferguson, Missouri. Now, set aside for a moment the details of exactly what happened that provoked the shooting. I don't know, and probably you don't either. Hopefully, we're not going to trust the media to cover all the truth angles of that. We know better by now, right? I don't know what happened. It's very possible that he was provoked. It's very possible that the officer was defending himself. We don't know. At least I don't know. Maybe you do. But what happened in the aftermath, there was a certain segment of people that wanted to couch this as persecution from a white cop to black people. And because of that persecution now, what's the attitude? I need to make somebody pay. I'm not going to stand for this. And so we saw protests that went beyond just marching and saying, we think this wasn't a fair trial, but they destroyed how many dozens of homes and and businesses, mostly of their neighbors, actually, which is sadly ironic. They burned up cars, and they shouted and screamed, proclaiming, this is not fair, we're being persecuted here, we're being oppressed, and we're not going to stand for it, we're going to rebel, and we're going we're to keep people from walking into the mall on Insanity Friday, and, and, and we're going to lay down and not let cars go by, and, and all of this in the name of, we are being persecuted, and we're not going to stand for it anymore. We're going to stand up for our rights and for ourselves, and and get some people back for this. That's, that's how the world thinks. We see this in the New Testament as well. 
from a couple of disciples of Christ. Do you remember when Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and he's got his disciples with him and they're heading through Samaria and Samaria oppressed them. They persecuted them. They ran out of town. You're not welcome here. You Jewish people, you go on down to Jerusalem where you belong, but we don't want your kind here. Do you remember what James and John said? Hey, Lord, shall we call down fire from heaven and consume them? Because they're not treating us the way we want to be treated? These are Jesus' disciples. And he turned to them and said, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what spirit is driving these thoughts. The scripture says he rebuked them harshly for that attitude. Why? Because that's not the attitude of a Christian. We're talking here in Romans 12 about a renewed mind. A mind that does not conform to the world's view of things. A mind that doesn't act upon our our natural sinful inclinations. A world that does not look at persecutors as our enemies. But a renewed mind, Jesus says, is is a mind that says, I'm going to treat my enemies with love. And I'm not only going to treat them that way, I'm actually going to to love them. Paul here says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now, we use the word bless or blessing in a variety of ways in our culture. Uh, If someone asks you to bless the food at lunch today, you know what they're asking you to do, right? They're asking you to pray and and give thanks. If you sneeze, somebody's going to say, bless you. Why? No idea. (laughs) Nobody knows why they say it, but you all say it. Why do you say that? Stop saying it. It waters down the whole idea of blessing. What's it got to do with that sneeze for crying out loud? Okay, I'm not going to preach that sermon, but someday I will, because that just makes absolutely no sense to me. Who made you do it? Grandma made you do it? Well, stop. Grandma was wrong about that. There's two, two Greek words, two New Testament words that are often translated bless or blessing. One is makairios. That's the word that begins in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the, are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And that has to do with a, a, a profound happiness, a, a privilege. We might say as someone who's fortunate, but we don't want to you know, put it in the chance category. God's blessing, God's favor is on them, and they are fortunate. They are privileged because of that, and, and that's, that's certainly true of the pure in heart. But the other Greek word is the word eulogeo, which may sound familiar to some of you. It's where we get our word eulogy. Think about what a eulogy is. It's the good word that is spoken at a, at a funeral or when someone has died. You're not supposed to dishonor the dead. You want to say something that is favorable, something that is good. That's why, what we call eulogy. That's the word used here, eulogeo. It is to ask God's favor or speak God's favor upon. It has to do with words. It has to do with what we say. And the contrast, he says, is do not curse. That also has to do with words. Uh, We use the word curse to to mean a bad word. We've kind of forgotten why they were ever called curse words to begin with. Most of the words we put in the bad word category 
are just words that are socially unacceptable, but they're not really curse words. A curse word historically is when you say to God, I want to call down your fire from heaven on these people. When somebody says, damn you, that's what they're saying. Think about it. Damn, damnation, condemnation. It's what the apostles did. Shall we call down fire from heaven, Lord, and consume them to hell? Lord, would you like us to damn them, to pronounce a curse of damnation upon them? That's what, it, what, what we're tempted to do with our enemies, and that's what Paul says, don't do that. Instead, call upon God's favor. Call down God's blessing upon your enemies. Now, why would Jesus want us to do that? Because that's exactly what Jesus did. Remember? He's there at Golgotha. These Roman soldiers who have just beaten him to within an inch of his life. And they had pressed down the crown of thorns on his head, piercing into his skull, and blood came pouring down. And they mocked him, and they stripped off all his clothes, and then they took the, the spikes, drove them into his hands, into a piece of wood, into his, his feet, and then they raised him up where he had to fight for every breath because it was like a, an elongated suffocating to death. And, the, and they shoved the spear in his side, and as blood and Guts are just pouring out of him. He's there in, in all of his shame and, and, and uh, intense pain. If ever there was someone who had the, not only the right, but the authority to call down fire from heaven. I mean, he's, he's God, right? Jesus, God on the cross. All he has to do is give the word. Father in heaven, take him now. Take them out now. It's time. Look what they've done to me. Send that same fire that consumed the sacrifice at, at Carmel, Mount Carmel. Take that same fire and just destroy all of these people who hate me. He was justified. He had the power. Ever there was an opportunity for righteous cursing of damnation upon people. That seemed like it would be it. And what was his cry? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive. Using his words, calling down from heaven something, calling down forgiveness for them. Not damnation, not the curse. Because Jesus' heart was filled with love and kindness and grace. And he says, if you're my followers, you're going to follow me in that too. And if your heart is filled with kindness and grace of the gospel, then you are going to be that kind of person as well. And what's going to spill out of your heart when you have an enemy through your mouth, is not calling down God's judgment on people, but calling down his grace and his kindness. Now, Paul here is just quoting 
Jesus. And I want to go back and look at what he's quoting. So if you have your Bibles or your phones or your iPads or your whatever those devices are, turn back to Luke chapter 6, Samsung Galaxy 18.3, the next big thing that you're going to use as a paperweight. Uh, Luke chapter 6, and I want to catch this in its context because that's usually a good thing to do is look at the context. So I'm going to go back to verse 20. This is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, or some people call it the Sermon on the Plain. Might be two different events, might be the same event, we don't know exactly, but a lot of the same content as Matthew 5 through 7. Starting verse 20, Luke 6, 20, he says, Turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed, and this is the makairos, this is the, 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 the happy, the, the privileged kind of word. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. This is an astounding teaching by the Lord Jesus. Christianity is really an upside-down religion compared to everything else. Everything is turned on its head in Christianity. It, it is a future-based religion. Uh, it, it is, a, is a, a religion of deferred or delayed gratification. We trust Jesus in hope, looking to the future, looking for our eternal blessings in the next life, not in this one. And that, that makes people crazy especially people who are absolutely convinced that this is it. There is nothing after death. We're just the product of chance and, and evolutionary forces, and so this is all you get, so you've got to be happy now. And they think we're crazy for looking forward to future happiness. And sometimes they don't just think we're crazy, they feel judged and they don't like it. So when we say things like, you know, I'm going to not go out and get all of the sexual pleasure I could possibly get. I'm going to do it God's way and, and just pursue my wife. They, one, think we're nuts, but two, they don't like it because they feel like we're judging them. Or when we say, uh, when, a, when a woman defies that, uh, that command of the Lord and gets pregnant and she wants to choose to remove a part of her body and we say, no, you need to live with the consequences of your actions and, and that joy can be restored and, and the despair that it may be bringing to your life. There is hope for that, but it's a, it's a future hope if you would turn to Christ. Uh, but we're not going to see that life as an inconvenience because we see eternal life as where true satisfaction is. And if, if I have to suffer here, I suffer here. They don't understand what that means and, and they don't like it. Or if we say it's not okay for people to just marry whoever they want to. It's not okay for a man to marry a man or a woman to marry a woman. None of those things are okay. Uh, and they say, no, but pleasure is something you've got to pursue now. We say, no, uh, our ultimate pleasure is in the future. They don't like it, and they think we're nuts, and they want to shut us up. That's just how it works. They don't understand that everything we believe is wrapped up in this idea that, that Yes, there's benefit now, but the ultimate benefit of everything that we believe is future. The way up is down. 
And if you don't have every need, every desire, every yearning met now, that's okay. Someday it will be. And Jesus knows this, of course. And he says to these these people who are listening, you're blessed if you're poor. You're privileged if you don't have all of your desires met here. You're the kind of person that's fit for the kingdom of God because you're not looking for this life to meet all those needs. If you're the one who's hungry now, who doesn't know where your next meal is, that's okay because someday you will be entirely satisfied. That doesn't mean you're just going to get a decent meal in heaven. That means you're going to have a meal beyond your wildest dreams every day. Every day is better than the last day. It just gets better and better and better and better. It says, if you're the kind of person who weeps now, life is just hard and there's a lot of sorrow and mourning, that's okay. Because someday, you're going to laugh. You're going to laugh and leap with such great joy and profound happiness that nothing in this world can, can come anywhere near comparison to what's awaiting you. That's the heart of Christianity. It's, it's waiting. It's delayed gratification knowing that when Jesus comes back, that glorious day we sing about, then everything is wonderful. It's a religion of hope. The gospel is about hope. Well, Jesus knows that when we hold out that kind of hope and when we delay gratification, it exposes their selfishness and their greed and their yearning for, for pleasure. And when we say, look, uh, we have hope because Jesus died on the cross for our sin, and you can have hope too if you believe in the gospel, but if you don't believe the gospel, you don't have hope. And, and the end for you is going to be far worse than just drifting into nothingness and decomposing in a grave. You're going to stand before a judge someday, and he's going to judge your actions. Jesus knows that that kind of stance is going to provoke people to persecute and to reject us. And so he says in verse 22, blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil. <laughs> See how this is all mixed up from the world's perspective? You're blessed if people don't like you, Christian. You're blessed if they are standoffish and don't want to hang out with you and don't want you out in public. You're blessed. That's not how the world thinks. Now, the last phrase of verse 22 is the key one for this whole context, I believe. You're blessed when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil, comma, for the sake of the Son of Man. Just because you're an outcast, that doesn't mean you're blessed. If you're socially awkward, that doesn't mean you're blessed because nobody wants to hang out with you. That's, that's not how it works here. If, if, if you're a jerk and people don't want to be around you, and they rip down your name, you're just getting what you deserve, right? That's not where the blessing is. The blessing is because of your devotion to Jesus. If they don't like you, that's the person who's blessed. You're ostracized, you're cut off, you're, you're the people that they all at work, you know, they all huddle over here and whisper, and you know they're talking about you. 
or they suddenly change their behavior in a very awkward, uh, mocking way when you walk around. And Jesus says, blessed are you if that's how people treat you because of Christ. It's hard to think of that as blessing, I know, but that's what he says. You're privileged, you're fortunate in the divine sense, he says, if that's how people treat you. Why? He says, be glad in that day. <laughs> be glad when they hate you and think you're crazy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. Delayed gratification. God the Father sees that ostracization. He sees that persecution. He sees how they mock you. And he says, I've got a really special reward waiting for you when you get here. Stand firm and take it and be blessed and feel blessed because someday I'm going to show how proud I am of you for that. Great reward in heaven. Then he says, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. Now, he's, he's talking to a specific context. He's not talking about people at your, your workplace here so much. But remember, he's talking to Jews here. And he's saying, this is how... Our forefathers, the sinful Jewish forefathers, used to treat the prophets. Think about Elijah. We looked at him a few weeks ago. Now, we looked at him as a negative example, right? You're gonna, my, my wife said she's always now going to think of Elijah as Elijah the quitter. Well, he was. But he did some good things, too. And he came and he proclaimed the truths of God. And the whole Mount Carmel bit was an amazing thing. And they wanted to kill him. They didn't take kindly to his holding fast to the truth. For him speaking the truth of God, they ran him out of town. And Jesus is saying, if people want to run you out of town for holding fast to the truth, then, then rejoice and leap because that's how people have always treated those who are faithful to God. You're identifying with those who hold to the truth even when it gets really hard. Then he flips it around and says to the culture, woe to you who are rich. For you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. See, our, our culture's got it all backwards. If you receive full pleasure now, if you're pursuing full pleasure now, and your concern is just, how can I make more money? How can I be happy? How can I avoid pain and all of that? Whatever you can get here now, that's, that's all you're ever going to get. Someday, when you stand before your judge, and you're not righteous, you're unrighteous, no matter how many years or decades you may have had in this life that were pretty decent, all things considered, you've got eternity of judgment awaiting you. Now, he said, blessed are those when people don't like you for his sake. Verse 26 says, woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. If, if we don't have anybody who thinks we're a little uh, wacky for being Christians, uh, that may not be a good thing. It may be because we are too much like the world that we don't have anybody who's against us. And Jesus says they used to treat the prophets of Israel this way, the false prophets, that is, because the false prophets said whatever wanted to be heard. The false prophets declared to the people, you're 
fine. You're okay. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I mean, God's not angry with us. We're the people of God. We're his chosen people. Look, we have his law. We have the temple. We're fine. I mean, as they're out committing great idolatry and carving out of wood and stone these false gods and bowing down before them and bringing the Asherah poles and even offering their children to the false god Moloch, they have prophets coming up to the people of Israel about this saying, it's good, all's good. Hey, God loves us. He's a gracious God. He's a kind and accepting God. He's a loving God. God loves everybody the same. Treat everybody. You can do whatever you want to because God is love. That's what these prophets of Israel were saying to the people of Israel. And God sent the real prophets to them and said, I never said that. I didn't give them those visions. They're saying peace. There's peace, shalom, when there is no peace. Because I'm about to disturb the peace by bringing foreign nations down to destroy them. You don't want to be the kind of Christian where everybody likes you. Now, again, if they don't like you because you're unlikable, that's one thing. But if they don't like you because you stand for, the, for Christ, that's a good thing. Somebody ought not like you. There's your application for the day. Make somebody not like you. <laughs> what he says. Then he gets to the heart of it here, verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. These people who persecute and ostracize and insult you and scorn you, love them. Not just a heart feeling, though. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. That's Christian ethic. That's Christ-centered ethic. That is a renewed mind. These people want to ostracize you. They want to shun you. They want to insult you. They want to write nasty blogs about you and tweets about you. And they want to, they want to throw rocks at your house quite literally. Jesus says, you love them. You do good to them. You pray for them. Not imprecatory psalms. There's no room for imprecations in the new covenant. We're not allowed to go back and trace through those psalms and now bring those forward and start applying them to people we don't like or who don't like us. If somebody's your enemy, here's your command. Love him or her. When you pray, you're to pray blessings. You are to pray not God's damnation upon them, not God's condemnation upon them, but God's blessing and favor and goodness upon them because that's what Jesus did. Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. Father, be good to them. Yes, these people who would like to take you out and beat you, we are supposed to pray for them. Father, be good to them. Be kind to them. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. Now, this is the context for these difficult verses that sometimes Christians really wrestle over. But in their context, I think it makes perfect sense. Verse 29, whoever hits you on the cheek, 
offer him the other also. It's in the context of you being persecuted for the sake of the Son of Man. I don't think he's talking about just anybody. You're walking down the street, and he doesn't know you from anybody. He just comes up and, you know, pow, right in, right in the cheek. And you're supposed to say, here, you, you miss a side right here. That's not the point. This slap, the, the, the word there is the kind of slap you give someone when you are insulting them. It's not about pain so much as kind of a backhanded, you know, how dare you. This is the kind of slapping they did to Jesus when they were beating him and mocking him. They're slapping him. Uh, in, in other cultures, we don't have this so much in America, but in other cultures, you might spit on somebody as a, as a great detest, statement of detesting or disdaining him. Slap them, not because you're trying to hurt them as much, but it's, a, it's just a great insult to be backhanded. That's the kind of slap he's talking about. So if someone is so angry with you, so upset at you for being a Christian, they're just appalled. And they want to just slap you because they are superior and you're a fool for being Christian. That's the context that Jesus says, let them do it again. Let them insult you. Let them degrade you. Let them spit on you. Whoever takes your coat, don't withhold your shirt from him either. Again, I don't think it means that everybody, just the common thug who grips off your coat, you just go, hey, I forgot my shirt here. But if if someone is exercising their their anger at you at being a Christian and they think they're so superiority and they just superior and they just have to make you suffer and they rip off your coat, well, let them take whatever they want. Take your shirt. You, as a representative of Christ, are going to stand there and hang on the cross for them and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Here's my shoes. Here's my wallet. Whatever you want. If you're angry at me for being a Christian, you can treat me however you want to. That's the context. Because that's what Jesus did. He didn't fight back. He didn't say ugly things to them. He didn't defend his honor. He just hung there. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Again, the context is the persecution. This is not a thief. This is not just your ordinary thief that steals your stuff, or somebody walks up and says, hey, give me that. Well, Jesus said, I got to give it to you. No, that's not the context. The context is, because you're a Christian, I hate you. Give me your stuff. And you say, here you go, take it. And then he says, treat them the way you want them to treat you. This is to be our attitude for those that hate us because of our belief in Jesus. Treat them the way you want them to treat you. Kindness. Grace. Patience, love, that's how we want to be treated. That's how we're supposed to treat people who hate us for our Christianity. Now he goes on to explain why, even further, verse 32, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Big deal. You're not setting yourself apart. We're not showing a renewed mind. We're not showing the mind of Christ when we take care of people who take care of us. 
The world does that. Everybody does that. That's what he says. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend in order to receive back the same amount. That's how the world works. We have all those phrases to describe this, right? If you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Uh, Stephen Covey made this, made this uh, very, very popular with his win-win situation. Do things that are win-win, things that are beneficial to you, things that are beneficial to me. Uh, tit for tat kind of thing, I'll do this for you if you'll do this for me, that kind of thing. We have whole communities built on that idea among unbelievers. It's not that unbelievers are incapable of showing love and being kind. They can. They treat each other well, but usually it's because they're expecting something in return. Think about the whole open source community, for those of you that are uh, up on this kind of thing. Uh, the, the, the community support pages. Where's Todd Ferris? Are you in here, Todd? He's back there in the sound booth. He changed his timing belt. Now, I'm, you know, uh, mechanically illiterate, so that's, a, that's impressive to me. He changed his timing belt, and how did he do it? He got on YouTube. And somebody had gone through and marched him step by step on a YouTube video. You know, you take off this nut and you pull off that thing. And I, I do know enough about timing belts to know that usually they're like in the middle of everything, right? You got to take the whole car apart to get to it. Or maybe I tried to take the wrong thing, but that's what I think it is. <laughs> if I had YouTube when I tried to do it, I would have probably succeeded. But that's amazing. Somebody took the time. How many hours do you suppose that takes to, to have the video camera set up just right and, and go through systematically where somebody like me could actually do that? Why would they do that? Why would they take the time? Because they're just trying to be, be good to people. And probably because there are things they need that they're hoping somebody else will post a video of to show them. Let's all just get along, right? The Rodney King ethic. Let's just, let's just everybody be nice to each other. First time my, uh, my <coughs> MacBook screen went out, uh, the first MacBook I had, uh, I wasn't going to pay the, the money to go replace it, and they'd put claws. Apple, uh, you think I like worship Apple. I don't. There are a lot of things I don't like about Apple. And one of the things is they don't like you to get in their stuff. Once they get it off the assembly line, like, don't touch it. Don't get inside it. Don't do anything. Just, just use it. And, and, but, but the display went out. I did some research, and it was a past warranty, and I, I, I thought, oh, I can do this. So I, the, I, I found uh, some video and pictures, and what they had done is they had put, like, with maybe half-inch part, all the way around the entire display, and this was a 17-inch, so it was a big display, little claws. And you had to pry every single one of those claws, but, but you had to be careful because they had all the cabling, all the wiring, everything, and the, the iodes and diodes and whatever those things. I don't know anything about that either. But all the electronic stuff in there, and all the warnings were, don't do this because you're probably going to break something that cannot be fixed. But I thought, I can't. There's no display, so what, what I have to lose, right? So I went through and pried and spent hours prying all these things out. And I had a, a, a video and a, and a website just step by step, you know, every step. Warning, don't do this, but if you do, here's what you're supposed to do. And, and then I, you know, of course, I had to buy a $120 part that I had to put in there and fix. And then I had to get the whole thing back together. And there's that, this is not going to start. This is not going to start up. This is not going to start. 
boom, it started out. This is great. And that part lasted about three weeks, I think. But somebody had taken the time to video and to, to record and write down every little step of this intricate procedure so that I could replace this part to make my display work. Why? They didn't get anything out of it. Except for, I guess, maybe they're hoping to get a bunch of uh, hits so they'd get, I don't know if Google pays them or what. But, but even that is kind of, that's the point, is I will put this out there for you and maybe you'll put a video that's helpful to me. Or I will put this video out for you and if I get enough hits then I get a little check on the side or whatever. And then the whole support community, somebody just asks a question, hey, this happened, has anybody else experienced this? And then, you know, 80 people write in and say, yeah, I had that. No, nah, Apple's stupid, I can't believe they fixed this. And, yeah, go buy a non-Mac product, whatever. And all this stuff. But then somebody comes along and says, oh, yeah, you just push click these things and you're done you're fixed there's community there's people loving one another in that sense why because they're getting something back out of it I'm going to answer this question because I know the solution but then I'm going to ask this and hopefully somebody else will pay me back they'll scratch my back with a solution to my problem Jesus says even unbelievers will do that even unbelievers will be nice I'll come over and shovel your driveway maybe you'll shovel mine in return you'll cut my grass whatever that's how people are that doesn't set us apart to take care of people who treat us well also unbelievers do that all the time Jesus says you want to set yourself apart Love those people who hate you. Love those people who have nothing but evil things to contribute to your life. You treat well. You do those good things. You answer their questions. You help them change their timing belts when last week they threw the rock through your window because you're a Christian. And you see them working on the car and you don't go over and kick out the jack. You go say, hey, how can I lend a hand? That's different. The world doesn't know what to do with that. Verse 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. That's the Christian ethic. And he says, your reward will be great. And this may be the most important part. You will be sons of the Most High. Now, he's not saying have faith in the gospel and do this and you'll be his children. It's a different kind of, he, he's using the word sons here a little differently. He's not talking about the adoption that comes uh, because of our faith. Uh, so often in the Bible, when the scripture uses the idea of sonship, its emphasis is you as children act like your father. You act like your parents. That's what we do. And in ancient days, in days gone by, uh, if whatever occupation a son's father held, the son most likely would have that occupation as well. So, you know, Gabe would grow up and be a pastor. And Ben's son might grow up and be a, a, a landscaper or a church executive director, whatever. But you, you learned the skills. You learned how to, if your dad was a farmer, then you became a farmer because that's what sons did. And sons acted like their dads and they, they followed their dads around. And I, and I see this uh, in, in my own son. And I see this in my own life as well. Uh, one example is, I remember uh, at some point, this is years ago now, but I was standing in a door jam just a certain way, something like this. It was a door jam, a little different. And I remember thinking, just it sort of jumped out at me. 
I'm not sure I've ever done this before in my life. Maybe I have, but my dad stands like this. And, and it's not like he ever pulled me aside and said, son, when you're standing in a doorway, <laughs> this is the proper way to rest your elbow. You know, it just, it just, you grow up like your dad. And so Jesus can say to the Pharisees, who were Jews, you're not sons of Abraham. And they're thinking, you've lost your mind. Here, I've got my paperwork. I can show you. I'm a descendant of Abraham. No, 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 that's not the point. Your father's the devil because you're acting like the devil. If you were acting like your father Abraham, you wouldn't be trying to kill me. That's the, the implication here. If you lend and treat others who hate you uh, well and you love your enemies, you will be sons of the Most High. You'll be acting like your father. Because that's how God is. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. You have people who live next door to you or across the street who couldn't care less about pleasing God, right? People who were ungrateful, who did not gather on Thursday and thank the Most High God for all their wonderful blessings. They might have gone around the room saying something about Thanksgiving, but they weren't thanking God. They're just doing what you do on Thanksgiving. You say thanks to who knows who. We all know, we have family, we have friends, we have uh, neighbors, coworkers, people who live their lives at various stages of rebellion, couldn't care less about pleasing God, they're ungrateful, they have no concern for God. In fact, some of them would uh, just say to you and to me, please stop talking about him, I don't want to hear it. Have you ever noticed that God doesn't withhold his blessing his kindness from those people? In other scriptures, in a similar context, Jesus says he sends his rain on the just and the unjust. It's not like you can drive across Kansas and pick out the believer's farms from the unbeliever's farms. There's no water on that one. That guy must be an unbeliever. It doesn't work that way. It's not like unbelievers can't enjoy many temporal gifts from God. They do. There are unbelievers who have great families. They get along well. They're healthy. He doesn't strike them all down with disease, plagues. They, they get through life, and uh, it's, it's pretty good life. They have a good job. They you know, don't get divorced and, and beat the kids. They actually seem to like each other in their home, and, and God seems to, they seem to prosper at every turn, and, and they're generally decent people. They just couldn't care less about God. How does God treat these ungrateful, rebellious people? Well, for some of them, he's very, very kind and merciful. And he just continues to heap blessing on them. Now, this is just one context. There are other scriptures that speak to this. We've already seen this earlier in Romans, right? His wrath is being revealed. And when God shows his favor to unrepentant people. They're just storing up wrath for themselves. Someday, his treatment of them will be different. But in our context and in what God is calling us to do through this text, 
our posture toward those who are ungrateful and evil men is show them kindness, show them favor, be good. Don't treat them as they deserve. Lend money and don't expect anything back. Just be nice because you love Jesus. Even if they hate you. I'm going to go quickly through this next part and then come back and wrap it up. But this next part is in the same context. And for me, this was profound when I realized that I think this is what Jesus is getting at. This is probably going to be brand new for many of you. And if you disagree with my interpretation, that's okay. I have to love you. Uh, But here's what I think he's getting at. This next verse, do not judge and you will not be judged. It's America's favorite Bible verse, right? I think the context is the same. I think he's not talking about judgment from God's perspective. I think he's talking about our interaction with people who hate us. If you don't judge them, they won't judge you. If you don't condemn them, they won't condemn you. If you will pardon them, they will pardon you. Give, and it will be given to you. They, it says, they, I think it's the unbelievers, the persecutors, they will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. For by your measure, it will be measured to you in return by them. I think he's talking about there's two different people, and they will respond differently. Some people, just by you being a Christian, they're going to hate you. Other people, if you don't go around judging them and condemning them, and you're good to them and kind to them and treat them like God does, they're actually going to accept you. They're going to say, eh, he's not such a wacko anyway, after all. And who knows what kind of gospel conversations that could lead to. I think he's saying, don't judge them. It's not your place to judge. It's not my place to judge. God is the judge. And we're not supposed to treat people as though we are the judge. And if we treat people with love and kindness, even those who don't like us, who knows? They might turn around and not not treat us so badly after all, and we might be able to get somewhere with them with the gospel. I think that's the context. I think that's what he's getting at here. This whole bless your enemies, love your enemies, don't curse them, it's really hard when you think about what's going on in other parts of the world. You think about the fact that the ISIS people are beheading Christians, slaughtering their children, talk about persecution what is to be our Christian brothers and sisters what's to be their response what's to be our response even on the other side of the world pray for them pray for the terrorists for the for the executioners again not the imprecatory Psalms not the father send your fire down and consume them but pray for them. Yes, pray for their salvation, but he didn't even say that, did he? I mean, that's, that's the highest expression of love. But he says, do good to them. We're to pray that life goes well for them. That's what Jesus said. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's, that's hard to do when you think about helpless Christians being slaughtered. But let's bring it closer to home, because at least at this point, we're not dealing with that kind of oppression. We're dealing with the ostracization and the mocking and the, you know, you guys just keep that to yourselves on Sunday mornings, but don't bring this into the public square kind of thing. 
And Jesus, by the way, has never said, keep your mouth shut about the truth. He didn't say, don't stand up for what is right. He didn't say, just let the evolutionists take over the school boards and let unbelievers take over the government. He didn't say any of that. He just said, when people don't like your stand, love them. Pray for them. Treat them kindly. So this is not a, a command to you know, hole up on our reservation and never get off. But I wrote something in the Frack Friday and the Shepherd's Care, and I heard from a few of you that this, this was encouraging to you. That's the kind of thing that I think we face more in our culture than, than the physical persecution. And for most of you who didn't read it, I was talking about how uh, we tend as Christians, I think, to get mad at Christmas time when people don't get it. As though we're the ones offended here. Now, first of all, Christmas is not in the Bible. God didn't make Christmas and say, observe this holiday. But you know, you know how it is when you, you go to Walmart and they say happy holidays and you're like, no, it's Merry Christmas. Stop saying that. I don't want you to have a happy holiday. You need to have a Merry Christmas. <laughs> you know in your heart that's what goes on a lot of times, right? You just get so angry. You see all the commercials. and well, They've just commercialized everything, and they've, now they're open to everybody. And all, It's Christmas, and we get so upset as though it's our honor that's, that's being trampled on here. It's not. If anybody has a right at the, the profaning of the incarnation of Christ, anybody has a right to be mad about that, it's God. And he says, love your enemies and treat them kindly. Do good to them. And so I've decided this year, I'm just not going to get mad about that stuff. I'm not going to take it as my personal crusade to shut everybody up in their error. What possible benefit does that do to anybody? Uh, I'm not, if somebody says happy holidays and you want to say Merry Christmas, uh, that's fine, depending on your tone. <laughs> but when we get so internally angry... Because unbelievers are acting like unbelievers? What benefit is that? You're going to go yell at them? I love you so much, I want to tell you how stupid you are and how offended I am that you messed up my holiday. Why don't you come to church with me on Christmas Eve? They're probably not going to come, and they probably shouldn't come. What if we said, okay, some just don't know any better. Some really think this is right. Some hate Christianity, and they want to do everything they can to enjoy the, the gifts and the music and the things that surround Christianity, but they want nothing to do with Christ, and they're hostile toward us about this. What's the proper response? I love you. Have a Merry Christmas. You hate me and everything I stand for? Merry Christmas. Here's a gift. That's what Jesus did. And that's what he calls us to. So your unbelieving neighbors and co-workers who really think you're crazy or at worst think that you're bad for society, what does Jesus want you to do to them? 
Kill them with kindness. Love them. Do good to them. Lend to them, expecting nothing in return. Hang there on your cross and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Pour out your blessing upon them. Let them prosper. Let them enjoy their holiday season. That's the command. Bless. Speak words of favor, not words of condemnation and destruction. That's not our business. You and I, we're not the judge. God's the judge. And when they stand before him, they will give an account for all of their actions and thoughts and feelings and their treatment of Christians and their blasphemy and all the rest. And then the one who is righteous will determine how to handle them. And we should certainly warn them that that day is coming. But even that should be spoken in love. Again, not as though I'm the one offended here. It's not my law they're breaking. It's not my holiness they're profaning. It's not my gifts they're ungrateful for. I'm not in the place to send them to hell. And if they think I'm angry at them, and I'm their judge, and I'm the offended party, they're not going to listen to the real one. But maybe, just maybe, if we love them, their hard drive will freeze up. What do I do with this? I want to beat that guy. He just loves me. Maybe, just maybe, God would use those conversations, those expressions of love, to let us talk about how they can escape the ultimate wrath, which is coming if they don't repent. Music team, come on up. We're going to sing this last song, Take My Life. Let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. There are so many themes from Romans 12 woven through this song. We're going to ask the Lord to take our lips, take our voices, take our whole beings and use them for his glory. And think particularly about what comes out of your heart through your mouth with people who don't like you very much because of Christ. Let's stand together and sing.